Read and hear more about important news and policy issues at ncpolicywatch.com. This is News and Views. Welcome back to News and Views. I'm Rob Schofield. Plea bargains. We've all heard of them, seen them on TV, and if we've received a speeding ticket at some point in our lives, probably engaged in the process firsthand. Familiar as the concept is, however, the details of how and when plea bargains occur, who does and doesn't get to take advantage of them, and the factors that prosecutors use in meeting them out is something that's eluded any kind of comprehensive analysis. Until now, that is. Thanks to a new and unique joint initiative undertaken by the Durham County District Attorney's Office and the Wilson Center for Science and Justice at Duke Law School, we now have access to a bounty of data on the subject in one of North Carolina's largest counties. And recently, to learn more about the study, the preliminary findings, and what they tell us about our criminal justice system, I caught up with the two leaders who helped make the study happen, Durham County District Attorney Satana DeBerry and the head of the Wilson Center, Duke University Law School professor, Brandon Garrett. Well, Satana DeBerry and Brandon Garrett, welcome to News and Views. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. Satana, can you tell us about this new study that is really a pretty remarkable and extraordinary new study that was produced really by your office and by the Wilson Center at Duke Law Schools? Tell us a little bit about the origins of it and what it's all about. Yeah, I'd love to. One of the things that we know about prosecutors' offices is that they're black boxes. You know, we don't know how decisions get made. We know that prosecutors have a ton of discretion, and we don't really know how they use that discretion. So the Wilson Center and I, through some kind of personal connections, started to talk about how we could do some research around our office. You know, one of the things that I promised when I ran for DA was uh, to be transparent and also to be data-driven, right? We wanted to know who we were prosecuting and why we were doing those prosecutions. And one of the things that we know very little about in the criminal legal system is pleas. 90 to 95% of most criminal cases are disposed of through the plea bargain. And we have no idea what happens between the time someone is charged and the time that case is disposed of. And so this is a big research interest of the Wilson Centers. It was also an interest of mine because we are very interested in making sure that we are fair and equitable in how we treat people and that people who are similarly situated were treated the same. We aren't increasing the racial bias in the system, that we aren't increasing socioeconomic bias. And so this is one of the projects that we came up with. Well, Brandon, this seems like a pretty extraordinary opportunity. It seems unusual to me that a, that a public agency would want to be so transparent about the work they were doing, particularly in this realm. It must have been pretty exciting for the center to be able to take this on. And maybe you can tell us about how that, that came about for you. Yeah, we were, we were really excited to help with this. I mean, like like uh, D.A. Bear was saying, you know, it grew out of conversations about the priorities of a, you know, a new office, uh, new leadership, and D.A. Bear's vision and how to make it a reality. And, you know, from my perspective as a law professor with a new research team at Duke, the question was like, what can we do to help that would really make a difference? That would ideally be novel and publishable and important research because it would set a model for what, what others could be doing around the country, but would also actually like provided real value. And, you know, North Carolina is one of those states where there's at least until recently, there's been a pause, but until recently, there's been very good court data in terms of what are the sentences, what are the charges in court? But the, the big open question is, well, what what is for the cases that are pled, where do those sentences come from? Uh, where do those pleas come from? You know, no one has done this work around the country. There's been a push towards greater transparency 
in prosecutors' offices. And so there's some offices that have dashboards. They largely show what the North Carolina court data kind of has. Like these are the charges. These are how many cases got dismissed. These are how many cases resulted in convictions. But the question is how? And, you know, you could have two cases that from a, you know, a, a district attorney supervising staff that look exactly alike. Both cases were, you know, the sentence was in sort of the middle of the guidelines. Maybe that's sort of a moderate outcome. But the question is, well, is it in the middle? Because in one case, the evidence was really weak versus in the other case, the person had real rehabilitative potential. And so you don't want to give them the most severe sentence. Those are two very, very different reasons for not giving the person or sort of not settling on a sentence that is the most severe. And you wouldn't know the difference unless prosecutors have to do this work. And so we were really excited at the opportunity to dig into the, the, the plea negotiation process. And that said, we kind of think this should be what all ethical prosecutors and defense lawyers do to basically show their work, that it's important to show your work, not just because it's good research and good data that you can rely on, but it's just good legal practice because we want everyone to be thinking about their rationales and their reasons when they're making really momentous decisions, like to offer a plea to the defense. It is a negotiation. The defense has to look at that offer and decide that it's one they want to take or they may push back. And ultimately, a judge plays at least some role. And that's something that we also document through this work. But these negotiations shouldn't just be treated as, well, that's all in the shadows. That's backroom dealing. We wheel and deal and we negotiate justice in this country. Ideally, you want to have a set of good practices for how to to fairly and equitably and carefully like weigh the evidence, weigh what's important in terms of priorities, and, and produce good outcomes. That's Professor Brandon Garrett of the Wilson Center of Science and Justice at Duke University Law School. We're talking with him and with Durham County District Attorney Satana DeBerry about a new study that's come out about plea bargains in Durham. Has anybody ever done this before that you're aware of, Brandon? Have you, has anybody else produced a report similar to this? No, there's another office in the country that was doing this at the same time, so tied for first place, and that was the office in in Berkshire, uh, Massachusetts. And actually, it was a conference here in Durham that the Durham DA's office helped to host with a number of other prosecutors' offices around the country where we talked about our interest in doing this work. We had actually already been well underway with the Durham office, though. We didn't just give prosecutors a survey and say, this is a good survey, collect the information using our form. It was very iterative and collaborative. We began with the wonderful work by a PhD student here at Duke who interviewed every DA in the office, often for much more than an hour, to talk mm-hmm. about your approaches towards plea bargaining. How do you see the work? What's valuable information for you as you think about what plea to offer and what happens during the process? We looked at sort of hard copies of offers that were made. They're called transcripts in North Carolina and digested that information. So there was work that was done for you know well over a year, almost maybe, maybe about two years before we piloted and then launched this new sort of mini system for documenting information about pleas. That helped to inform what was launched in Massachusetts. That office also, you know, collected about a year's worth of data. As far as we know, no one else in the country has done this. There have been some efforts to kind of survey prosecutors and give sample cases. You know, what plea would you think is fair for this case or that case? And so some qualitative stuff to really survey prosecutors like we did here about what are your priorities during the plea bargaining process. You know, it's typical in most DA's offices around the country to not even save the terms of offers. You know, how many offers were given? Was it, did the first offer you gave get snapped up by the defense? It's just not routinely documented, not routinely documented in an office, not routinely set out in court, really. The final sentence and, you know, is entered at a hearing, often a very brief hearing, but it's not like a trial where there's a whole public process 
that results in a conviction. So I want to ask DA DeBerry about what was your staff's feeling about this? This seems like a, an interesting ask to ask of your prosecutors to participate in a process like this. How did how did it go and how did it actually work for them to report all these details of work that had not really been transparent in the past? It will surprise no one uh, that they resisted. They mm. have a lot of work to do uh, to start with. And so adding an sure. additional layer seemed like extra work to them. And once they got interviewed about their processes and started to understand what we were trying to do, they got really interested in it. Like Brandon said, it was a collaborative process. So there would be some pushback from my ADAs that maybe this was taking too long to put in this, or it was taking too long to put in that. And so we really worked together to create something that became part of their work, part of everything that they did just in, in the process of disposing a case or closing out a case, you go ahead and enter your data into the plea tracker and then you're done. And it was really helpful because just the process itself mm-hmm. of thinking about why you do what you do really informed them around what our policies are, why our policies are the way that they are. Um, It makes them able to talk a little bit more uh, coherently about their work and how they do their work. Coming up next, part two of my special extended conversation with District Attorney Satana DeBerry and Professor Brandon Garrett. Stay with us. Read and hear more about important news and policy issues at ncpolicywatch.com. This is News and Views. Welcome back to News and Views. I'm Rob Schofield. In part one of my special extended conversation with Durham County District Attorney Satana DeBerry and Duke University Law School Professor Brandon Garrett, we discussed the groundbreaking new joint study undertaken by their institutions to examine plea bargains. In part two of our conversation, we dug into some of the most notable initial findings, including the outsized role that the race of the defendant seems to continue to play in plea negotiations. We also discussed the hope that DeBerry and Garrett share that the Durham study can be a model for jurisdictions across the country, both for better gauging their own plea bargain processes and more generally for bringing a much higher level of transparency and trust to the criminal justice system. So what do we find, Professor Garrett? What were some of the findings that this new report, some of the light that's been shed? What do we know about how things are getting done in Durham? Sure. I mean, in general, like we were looking at felony pleas over the course of an entire year. We saw that the initial charges, the initial sentence exposure that a defendant had really changed. Ideally, during a plea negotiation, there should be learning. It shouldn't just be cookie cutter, like take it or leave it. This is our offer. And what we saw is that these negotiations were were productive and that often the thinking about what was the right result in a case changed quite a bit. We saw that in particular, you know, mitigating evidence, evidence about the defendant's ability to rehabilitate or collateral consequences mattered, which you would hope would be the case in a productive plea negotiation. And like we've talked about some in the report and and publicly, we also noticed a real racial disparity in terms of how many mitigating factors were noted in cases, what defendants had more mitigation noted. There's a lot more in the report. We talked about also just like what types of things were valuable to prosecutors as they thought about what pleas were appropriate, what kind of communication was there with the defense. There's a lot more detail in the report. But I mean, overall, it kind of confirms this idea that it's important to look at what happens during the plea negotiation process, that important decisions can be made, that this flow of information is really, really important. 
And also a report like this also matters because you know defense lawyers need to know that if they have information that really bears on what the appropriate sentence is, that they need to be sharing it, that it will be, it will be considered. Uh, if there's a perception that there's a cookie cutter process, then the communication will get even worse and the process will become more cookie cutter, right? That's a quick overview. It's a lengthy report. And we also just applaud the office for being willing to share just so much deep information about the whole year of their work. DA DeBerry, defense attorneys play a big role in this, right? I mean, they're part of these negotiations typically. I guess it wasn't a way to survey them or make them a part of all this. Well, I think Brandon is working on trying to get some defense attorneys, some public defenders to track their side of this as well. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the really the things I think that people will find surprising is that as a prosecutor, we know almost nothing about defendants. When you're a criminal defense attorney, you learn a lot about your client. You make a decision whether what you share with the prosecutor and kind of the typical defense attorney is trained to share almost nothing about the mm. client with the mm. And so as a prosecutor, we really only have the information that we have on our side to make these decisions. And that makes it even more important for us to have this back and forth with defense counsel because uh, we can only make the decisions we can make. And we want to know as much as we can to make these uh, good decisions. I assume they're aggravating factors, they're mitigating factors. Would the defense counsel, I would assume, might be putting forth mitigating factors for their clients saying, look, this person could be rehabilitated or this person's got mental health challenges. Or I assume that's part of these discussions quite often as well. You would hope. Mm. I think one of the things that this research found is that we often have more mitigating factors for white defendants. Mm. Black defendants have more aggravating factors. This research is not over. We're going to continue it with the Wilson Center. And I think that's one of the things we want to learn about is why is that? In our, in our Massachusetts research, we also saw differences in sort of level of communication and mitigation uh, based on the type of defense lawyer, which mm. was also complicated there where the public defender's office there tends to get the most challenging cases as well. And so it was, it was hard to unpack outcomes there because there may have been confounds where you had the most challenging, vulnerable people, but also represented by public defenders who seem to also be communicating more and, and, and sort of more organized in their approach. But we have been trying to design like a system for public defenders to do work like this. There are additional complications because public defenders have a client who has right. Right and would need to consent. And so we're getting good advice about sort of what are the right ground rules for, for doing something like that in, in a public defender's office. But there have been a few offices that have been interested. It's a real service that the Durham DA's office has done to help us develop this because we, you know, we'd like other offices to do this too. We think that it would be a good thing for prosecutors to be doing. And it's not like a, a unique problem that in Durham or in North Carolina, it's important to know what happens during the plea process. And so we've been designing like a more generic version of the plea tracker and also have simplified the plea tracker in response to all the feedback we've gotten in Durham so that the Durham DA's office can use something that's even more convenient and more useful. And so we're planning to launch a plea tracker 2.0, both that's responsive to all the feedback we've gotten in Durham for them to keep using, uh, but also a, a version that you could use in any state for any prosecutors that are that are interested in benefiting from this kind of information. 
either internally or that they want to share with the world. We're talking with Durham County District Attorney Satana DeBerry and Professor Brandon Garrett of the Wilson Center for Science and Justice at Duke University Law School about their new study on plea bargains in Durham County. Judges play a role in this too, right? Could we somehow survey them at some point or make them a part of the process? That would be really interesting. I mean, judges uh, are, are also busy and it's hard to survey judges. The power of judges in the plea process is really different in different states. Actually, in Massachusetts, judges have much more power to reject pleas or accept actually there. Both the defense and prosecution each put in a plea and the judge could accept one of the two. Like it's a it's actually surprisingly different how plea bargaining works in terms of the statutes that regulate it. And so there were more judge involvement that came out of the the research there than here in Durham, where it's not, I don't think, common for judges to to outright reject a, a plea that both sides are coming together on. De- DeBerry, do you see occasionally where judges come in and say, oh, well, you guys, maybe you missed something here, or no, I'm not going to go along with this. This is too tough. Does it happen, or is it? do they generally accede to what you all have worked out? The prosecutor has 100% discretion in what comes to court. In fact, the district attorney controls the calendar of what the judge sees. So we do sometimes have judges who will reject a plea. There may be a judge who said, who, that is the way that they handle things. You know, we have a circuit, we have circuit riding judges here in North Carolina. Sure. And so you might get a judge from who comes from another county who says, I do not accept negotiated pleas. Hmm. That sometimes happens. That is not common. It is most common that uh, once you bring a plea to the judge, it has been well considered by both the defense and uh, the state and has been agreed to, and the judge will will accept it. One way the judiciary or others in North Carolina could be involved is like it could be a, a standard court practice that at least like the, the transcripts of pleas, records of pleas, if not the offers, like could be saved and retained by the state. Like there's more that the court system could be doing to make the plea process more transparent, and it wouldn't take a an office like really putting all of its own work into developing a way to, to document this better. It could be something that the, that the courts take on. That hasn't happened anywhere in the country, really. I guess it's uh, more standard in federal court to have sort of a motion with justifications, you know, supporting a sentence recommendation and the like. But in general, and, and where most you know criminal convictions happen in state court, you don't have a lot of like paperwork accompanying pleas or a lot of records. Mm-hmm. As we come to the end of our time with uh, Durham County District Attorney Satana DeBerry and Professor Brandon Garrett of Duke Law School. So what's next? DA DeBerry, what are your takeaways? What would you like to see happen next? Well, I think the big takeaway from this is that even in an office where we are very concerned about fairness and equity, about racial bias, we still have those things. Our research showed that 80% of the people that we prosecuted were Black. You know, if you ask any prosecutor, if they prosecute people based on race, they would say, no, I don't do that. And I would say, I don't do that. And then you look at the numbers and you see just how overwhelmingly racially biased the system is. Another takeaway is that we often think of the American criminal legal system as a trial system, but it is a police system. And I think it is very important for us to acknowledge that. You know, we talk about 90 to 95% of cases being disposed of by plea, but I don't think people really take in what that means and how much decision-making, as Brandon said, is going on outside of a place where there's a court reporter and a transcript 
So the ability to capture some of that will give us a fuller understanding of what we are doing. And finally, as an elected official, public trust is a big thing. And what we know is that people do not trust the criminal legal system, whether they think it's too lenient or they think it's too harsh. Part of that is because they have no insight into what is happening. And for me, the biggest takeaway from this project is that we want our community to trust us. We want them to know that we're, we are working as best we can to make fair and equitable decisions and increasing justice in our community. That's what they elected me to do. We want them to be able to see that. So we're looking forward to continuing um, to do this and get even more rich data that we can share with our community. And Professor Garrett, I assume it's not the end of your work in this area. No, well, and like D.A.D. Barry said, they plan to continue to to do this work. We've been trying to do things to make the plea tracker just more useful, including like even things like all these reasons why you might either make a plea more severe or less severe, the collateral consequences, the aggravating factors, the mitigating factors. We've tried to like put it all on just a page so you can see all these different types of factors in one place and think about it holistically. And we'd like to do this with more offices and uh, and hope that you know, a diverse group of offices around the country take this on as something that they think would be valuable because we do think that it's important. And I think it's a reason actually why DAs in the office have come to us and said that over time they found this really valuable. It's not just because it's sort of good to show one's work in the abstract or that it feels good to show one's work, but it actually improves one's work if you have to set out your reasons. That's why judges are supposed to explain their reasons and offer them like it's part of due process and legitimacy and, and what we want in a sound case. So this kind of like reason giving is is really important. It's useful data and we, we learn things about patterns that might be corrected over time. But it's also like what, you know, what we should ideally be priding ourselves on as lawyers is that we are really carefully balancing the equities, especially lawyers that have enormous power and discretion like prosecutors do. Satana DeBerry of Durham County is one of the nation's most innovative district attorneys. Professor Brandon Garrett is the director of the Wilson Center for Science and Justice at Duke University Law School. Thank you both for your service to our state and our community and keep up the good work. And uh, perhaps we'll check in later this year or to find out as additional findings become available. Thanks for asking, Bob. Thanks so much, Rob. Well, that's it for this edition of News and Views. Remember, you can check us out online and subscribe for free to some of our state's best news coverage and political commentary at ncpolicywatch.com. You can also listen to all of our interviews and commentaries on Apple Podcasts. For producer Clayton Henkel, this Rob Schofield. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to News and Views. A weekly look at state and policy issues is a production of North Carolina Policy Watch. Visit them online at ncpolicywatch.com.